What are the key events in Ukraine over the past week since 22nd of May until 29th of May? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My co-host today is Maxim Panchenko, uh, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you, you can always support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Uh, you can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. So, Maxim, let's discuss the key events um, in Ukraine over the past week, and uh, I give the floor to you. Uh, you selected seven major events uh, over the past week, and probably we will also a little bit enlarge it, uh, looking at the events over the past days. Yes, uh, thank you. So, indeed, uh, there has been a good amount of events in and basically around Ukraine also because of the diplomacy that has been going on by President Zelensky uh, was uh, about the war, about the West helping Ukraine and uh, all his touring to Japan, etc. was also about that. So, uh, starting with that, indeed, uh, President Zelensky, uh, for, the, for the first time, showed offline at a G7 summit in Hiroshima, uh, where one of the m- biggest issues discussed, with regard to Ukraine, of course, uh, was the procurement of uh, F-16s to Ukraine, and it seems like the deadlock has been broken. And uh, there are a few details as of now, but still, uh, we understand that there is an agreement in the West to provide those uh, those weapons, those uh, fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, also, uh, closer to Ukraine's borders, uh, there have been developments in the deployment of uh, Russian tactical nuclear weapons in the territory of Belarus, which of course is a, ma- a major um, security development around Ukraine, and switching to, well, not just domestic issues, but frontline issues more specifically. Uh, there is, as uh, has been the case for the past month, a lot going on around Bakhmut. Ukraine is regaining territories in the flanks of, this, of the town, taking under the fire control Russian troops and blocking them from going further westwards. And, uh, of course, uh, there have been this um, imagery of what is presented to be Russian opposition militia, or I'm not sure how to summarize them, uh, breaking basically breaking through Ukraine's border into the territory of Russia and uh, doing their uh, several day-long raids there. Uh, and uh, this is what gained the major coverage in the media for the last week or so. Yeah, so let, let us discuss these issues, and we will also discuss the, the things that are happening over the past days, massive missile and drone attacks on Kiev and mm-hmm. uh, other cities of Ukraine. But let us talk about G7. Why do you think it is so important that Zelensky really showed up uh, physically? And, uh, well, that means that a lot of lot of measures, security measures have been taken. Otherwise, he could have taken, he, who could have participated in G7 meeting online. So the, the physical presence of Zelensky is, is a sign of something. What do you think? Well, I think, uh, as usually is the case uh, recently, it is trying to kill several birds with one stone. Because, first of all, uh, it should be embedded into the broader picture of his diplomacy. He has started uh, traveling much more to create this uh, F-16 coalition and 
in a broader sense with regard to other weapons and he so so it uh, indicates that there is a period in the war when, when he can first of all let himself leave the, leave the country for that long and when it is uh, it pays off to you know to do this extensive diplomacy so that's that uh, that is a, a good sign i would say about the developments around ukraine in diplomacy secondly it is worth noting that even though the g7 summit is conceptually we perceive it as about the west it's the western economies or the economies even if they're not western they're aligned with the west like japan but uh, what is important to indicate here is that he basically traveled to asia to japan and en route he traveled to the uh, summit of the arab uh, states so zelensky is really trying to diversify the bet on the west it's not like we're doubting something with the West, of course. Uh, they are our primary partners, but uh, we also are trying to engage in this, should I call it a turf war or whatever, with Russia, who uh, is trying to bet on the global south, on Asia, uh, against the backdrop of its deteriorating uh, relations with, uh, with the West. So that's the second. And the third uh, is... Um, the very fact that, of course, Zelensky has not been uh, participate, does not participate in the G7 for the first time because there have been several instances online. But at the same time, the fact that he is standing there, uh, taking family photos with there instead of a person, and I'm referring to Mr. Putin here, um, instead of the person who used to be in that picture for so long with within the G8 uh, format. So that is. Uh, the presentation of a new image, basically, for, for the world about who is engaged into the uh, big-time politics in the world these days. <clears throat> That's right. And I think <clears throat> another thing is that uh, actually, and, and this is our second topic, right? Uh, so actually the question of F-16 was really discussed beforehand and Zelensky had probably some guarantees, some assurances that the there will be a positive result out of this trip. Uh, so you're right that uh, on the one hand this is an attempt to breach relations with the Asian world and Ukraine is trying to diversify, uh, not only talk to Japan, South Korea or Taiwan, but also talk to uh, the Arabic world, which is which is very important. On the other hand, the story of F-16. So the story of weapons is like eternal saga for Ukraine. And sometimes we see our politicians, our top politicians, making kind of a checklist uh, and joking. Like initially they were asking for javelins. They were told it was before the big invasion. They were told no. Then they re Ukraine received javelins. Then they asked like for armored vehicles. Told no, received armored vehicles. Then they asked for... Uh, tanks said no, then received or ensured it was ensure, assured that Ukraine will receive uh, or is receiving major modern tanks. Then the question of air defense systems uh, like Patriot. And I hope we will also talk a little bit about this as well. Also said no. Then we know that there are patriots on the Ukrainian territory fighting very successfully with high-precision Russian weapons as Kinjal missiles. And then the, um, the aircrafts, the fighter jets, because there was a lot of talk that you cannot really train Ukrainian pilots that quickly, that F-16 
fighter jets need really a lot of work for maintenance and, and other stuff. Now we, we, we are probably going to receive them. What does it mean? Well, indeed, when you said about this uh, gradual increase of uh, what Ukraine has been receiving, uh, it remind me, reminded me of the uh, of uh, Minister Defense Minister Reznikov, who said, who wrote basically a letter to Santa last year, and he advertised it in his diplomacy, like there is a letter of my wishes to Santa, and these days, these weeks, he says that basically everything has uh, come into life uh, in the last uh, six months or so. So, indeed, uh, the thing that we here in Ukraine have been uh, discussing most when it comes to procurement of Western weapons to Ukraine uh, were three things. So it was uh, heavy armored vehicles uh, and generally machinery, I mean like tanks, first of all. Uh, those were the long-range missiles and those were the uh, planes, the fighter jets. So this has these three things had been presented as something that would be a game-changer. And basically we see that uh, even some of these three things are not yet in the battlefield or some of them are in a limited supply, like for instance, as my understanding is, is the case with uh, the Storm Shadow missiles. Uh, still, the fact that the seal has been broken uh, is uh, pointing towards the fact that we may need to wait a little longer for, you know, for the technical side of things, for the supply, for the logistic routes, you know, to, to you know, for, for the delivery of weapons. But uh, we basically got everything that we received because I don't really think that there has been something in our w wishes we uh, have voiced in the last six months that we haven't been promised already. Uh, no major unit of machinery, I think. So I, from what I gather from now on, it's going to be the, um, the matter of more of the same rather than something new because basically we have received everything. No, everything. I mean, there is there is a room for improvement, of course. And uh, high uh, long range missiles is a very important thing. It's good that you mentioned Shadow Storm, which is a British missile, but uh, there is also kind of a similar missile uh, in France, I think. And it's also there are talks that Ukraine will receive it, and Ukraine already showed how it will use it because it uh, most probably it stroke targets in Luhansk which is our occupied territory in Ukraine, but uh, very deep in the Russian occupied territories. And uh, it is important that Ukraine is able right now to strike the the targets which are very far away from the front line, right? so let's say like maybe dozens of kilometers or hundreds of kilometers from the front line. Another thing which is I think it is important in this in this context is that uh, well why do we need F16 and I hope that um, I hope that we will also discuss these things in the near future on Ukraine world and we'll talk to experts uh, knowing more things about this but it is clear that uh, all this for now it is also an attempt to to close the sky, right? Remember that Ukrainians in February 2022, early March, were begging the whole world to close the sky. And um, it was it was said that it is very difficult to, to, to do. Ukraine is a very big territory. Uh, but at least you, you can do something. You can, you know, protect the sky, um, uh, in some places, like in Kyiv, we have, and we'll probably discuss it, that 
uh, air defense system is working very, very well. And there are lots of rockets, lots of missiles sent to Ukrainian capital, but most of them are, are uh, turned down, are downed. But maybe F-16 is also one of the puzzles of that, because what the Russians are doing is that they're trying to exhaust right now the Ukrainian air defense systems. They're trying to exhaust all the missiles that we have uh, to down the, the, the Russian rockets, to down the Russian um, uh, fighter jets, uh, drones, mainly the drones. Uh, but if we got uh, F-16, if we got also the protection of the sky, not only with the help of air defense, land-based air defense systems, but also with the help of uh, fighter jets, that will probably help. Yes, indeed. Uh, but at the same time, there is still one thing that I haven't figured out for myself in this context, because, um, well, we have been talking, and Ukraine has been talking, that uh, we need F-16, as you uh, said, to reinforce our air defense strategy, uh, because we have, uh, as of now, a surface-to-air, basically, uh, air defense strategy and uh, this was would help us and the further step in this strategy would be to enable ukraine to uh, aim and to i mean to target russian planes before they are able to uh, fire their missiles at ukraine at ukrainian cities but the problem with that is that uh, russian planes russian fighter jets do that virtually all the time from the territory of russia from above like regions near Ural and everything. And I heard that uh, F-16s are going to be supplied to Ukraine under the condition that we're not going to strike at Russia's territory, what is internationally recognized as Russian territory. So that basically impeaches the goal of how we see yeah, it. Yeah, but I mean, I was talking about interception of missiles, not not just targeting of Russian planes. Of course, if, if the Russian planes are... Uh, you know, shooting at Ukraine from the Caspian Sea, you, Ukrainians don't have uh, a lot of a lot of uh, resources to do, to target them. But at least um, they can they can have more resources to target uh, missiles sent by these planes or sent by some other things. And um, another thing that it actually happened uh, some time ago that Ukraine or maybe not Ukraine, we don't know. Maybe Russians themselves, we don't know. Uh, don't four, at least four or maybe five, right, um, uh, units of Russian um, Air Force, two uh, fighter jets and two helicopters at least. So who did that? Some say, some say this was a friendly fire. Ukraine says it was a Russian-friendly fire. We don't know about this. Maybe it was also a Ukrainian system which was very close to the border and... Uh, uh, and uh, shot at uh, these um, these airplanes and these helicopters. We don't know, but um, but really um, the the te technological side of it, uh, I think it's 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 really really important. I hope we will discuss it with experts here a, a little bit later. Let's move forward and um, let's talk about the situation when uh, when the Russian. Uh, the, the the Russian military actually, or which are, who are fighting on the Ukrainian side, who are presenting themselves as uh, Russian volunteer corps, entered the territory of uh, Belgorod Oblast uh, a few days ago, last week actually, and um, uh, captured a few villages, like I think it was Harvoron, or at least the checking point there, 
it was Glotova, if I'm not mistaken, or something else. And um, they actually controlled these places for some time, and they when then they left the territory of Russia. So that meant that um, Russian Russian border is very porous; that it is hugely unprotected. Of course, Russians were saying that it was Ukrainian nationalists, it was Ukrainian uh, groups, paramilitary groups, but we have all seen how these people were presenting themselves, how they were giving press conferences in the fields, uh, and how they were actually doing this work under this alternative flag of Russia, which is white, blue, white instead of red. Well, yes, and um, <clears throat> so I think that the goal of this was two-edged, double-edged. Uh, so the first one would, of course, be to draw some of the resources Russia has in Ukraine's territory, particularly on the Donetsk direction uh, of the front lines, uh, to, to have Russia pull it back to its internationally recognized borders and to protect the border of Russia elsewhere that turned out to be, as you indeed have pointed out, porous. Uh, because, uh, and from what I heard again, from what I've read uh, online, is that Russia indeed had pulled some, not a crucial amount, of course, of, of resources of people there, but still there has been some movement from the front lines, you know, to protect other par uh, parts. So basically, in this respect, it's funny that uh, we are now trying to uh, repay Russia for what they have been doing since the start of the war, because after Russia had retracted from the north and from the uh, well, let me say, northeast of the of the country, they still uh, had kept uh, Ukrainians' intention, uh, keeping some of their units across the border, uh, as uh, as in saying like we're going to invade you again, so that Ukraine would have to you know not be not not be able to put all the resources on Donbas in the in the south. So it's funny that we're trying to play the same game with them, and of course I think there is uh, the goal, the PR goal to intimidate a bit the Russian population, uh, at least across the, closely across the border in Belhorod region, you know, uh, to spur some unrest, to spur some discussion among Russians that maybe let, let, let's back off, let's bring the things to the end. Yes, and it is important that, the, well, there is a discussion in Ukraine who are the so-called good Russians, whether it is a political opposition abroad or whether these are people who are fighting on the Ukrainian side. And um, this was, uh, of course, one of the major operations that have been made by these uh, people, by Russian Volunteer Corps and Freedom of Russia Legion. So le let's follow this, what will happen afterwards. Let's talk about the front line, and everybody knows the town of Bakhmut. Um, what's happening there? Because I think the situation is ambiguous. On the one hand, Ukrainians uh, either do not control the city anymore at all, or they control a tiny part, which is more to the northwest, I think, or southwest. I'm, you know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. The so-called uh, the district of uh, a, a plain, Litachok, the so-called. and um, But what is happening, so Russians are claiming, of course, the Wagner group is claiming that it took over control of the city. We know that it, it claimed it many times, actually. Uh, but what is important is that uh, 
Russians have not taken control of the city. They destroyed the city. What we see from the footages, from the videos, from the drone videos, we don't see uh, actually the city because their tactic was to destroy any particular, every particular building they are attacking where there are Ukrainian positions. And now we have the information from our uh, general staff that Ukrainians are counterattacking or making the so-called, if to use the terminology, the Ukrainian terminology, making the counteroffensive actions or measures around Bakhmut and trying to uh, capture the flanks of the city. And basically, these flanks contain the heights, which might be strategically important to ensure the control, the fire control of the city. What can you tell me? Well, yes, indeed. As you said, uh, we might have left the city or might be controlling a tiny part of it. But I think, uh, following the topic that you uh, started, that as far as there is basically no more Bakhmut left, as is the case with so many other towns in, in Donbass, um, one should uh, try and switch to uh, thinking about Bakhmut as um, a utility area, so to say, military-wise. How we can now that it is not non-existent, and uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, how we can use the, those territories to tie uh, Russian troops there and to try to control them. And this is of paramount importance because uh, roads from Bakhmut they lead to several other. Uh, several other towns remaining under Ukrainian control in Donbass, uh, simultaneously to the west, uh, which would be the direction to Kostantinivka, one of the rema big remaining towns, and to the north, uh, which would be to uh, the, this agglomeration of Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, uh, and farther to the north, uh, Svetohirsk. So it is really important to control those heights and to, to block Russians from going anywhere further uh, because uh, indeed uh, that would, if, because if we don't, that will multiply the possibilities of, uh, of Russians. And uh, again, once again, this should be embedded in the context of the uh, imminent Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, which is evidently being postponed for further preparations, but uh, still we need to sit there on the flanks of Bakhmut, at least until, uh, you know, there is a broader counteroffensive on, on the Ukrainian side. Yes, and um, <clears throat> we are talking about, so often when we are talking about Bakhmut, we are talking about hundreds of meters there, hundreds of meters here. Uh, Ukrainians are saying that they, are, they have regained control over, I think, several square kilometers, so even a few dozens of square kilometers around Bakhmut. But actually, it's it's not such a big operation that we have seen uh, in September last year around Kharkiv and then in November around mm -hmm. Kherson. So basically, we can say that all, over the half of the year, Ukraine has not liberated any big part of its territory. And... Uh, uh, of course, that meant that Ukraine was waiting for these weapon supplies. And uh, actually, we're talking right now, some of people are talking that counteroffensive operations, counteroffensive measures have started. And basically, it is very important that this is this preparatory job to, to destroy these facilities, to destroy this ammunition, the depots, and, and, and all the rest. And of course, the summer months will be very, very important. 
What else? Uh, let's talk about Belarus. Uh, Russia and Belarus signed an agreement on the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, Putin is said even that whoever joins the so-called Soyuznaya Gosudarstva, the Union State, will also get a tiny part of tactical nuclear weapons. I hope we will talk about the nuclear weapons and um, about the situation nuclear diplomacy in one of our next episodes and I've already prepared a conversation with a good expert. I hope we will issue it soon. But uh, Belarus itself, there is a big question about Lukashenko and about his health. Because we have seen on the 9th of May victory parade that it was extremely ill. He didn't he was not able to move himself. He was he was really, really bad and uh, he he appeared to be in the hospital afterwards. So People have started talking about the probably probable uh, fast end of Lukashenko. What will it mean? What what can be the scenarios? First about this nuclear weapons, and then Belarus uh, after Lukashenko. Yes, indeed, it's very interesting because uh, the situation in Belarus uh, might even become uh, is that the right term? The black swan in English. That uh, because if something happens to Lukashenko, if he indeed is so ill that he's incapable of uh, being the leader, or if he dies, um, I think there are several scenarios that could well impact Ukraine in a major way. First of all, in that case, Russia could seize the moment to take the full control uh, of Belarus under the pretext that we are the Union state, all the same. What's the difference? Like there is not going to be a next president of Belarus. You know, we're just joining to, you know, pulling up resources. And uh, so in that case, the threat of the crossing of border from Belarus, of Ukraine's border from Bel- from the territory of Belarus by Russian troops would be even, even bigger, uh, I would say. Because for now, Lukashenko seems to be, uh, you know, fighting his way out of letting Russia do that, at least for the time being. And uh, on the other hand, maybe that would also be a moment for Belarusian opposition to step in as ununited as, as it may be, but still maybe there would be some grassroots forces because, hey, Russia is tied in Ukraine. Its attention is diverted primarily to Ukraine. Maybe, it, I'm not to say that there would be no uh, reaction, react, reactionary movement, reactionary measures on the part of uh, Russia. Of course, it would try to choke what, what would be happening in Belarus, but uh, I don't think that... Uh, uh, its reaction will be weaker at any other time in at any other point in time than it would be now when Russia is tied in Ukraine. So uh, that also would be a possible scenario. So that's why I'm saying that things could indeed become quite interesting if Lukashenko were to die or step down because of health issues or whatever. Indeed, we don't know what will happen. Things can turn uh, very radically in both directions. So Belarus get could. Uh, finally, definitely lose its sovereignty because Lukashenko is really, even under these circumstances, you are right that it is he's trying to balance. And the, there was um, for a long time there was no strikes from the Belarus territory on Ukraine. Uh, and as soon as the Kiev operation was ended, has ended, has been ended by Russia, and this Kiev operation, as we know, led to Russian defeat uh, near Kiev. Also, we didn't see any uh, any frontline attack, front attack from the Belarusian territory on the Ukrainian territory. So um, 
Belarus could become even more pro-Russian or just a part of Russia if Lukashenko dies. Or it can become really something else and, and say, no, we're not in this game. We're no longer in this game. And uh, it's it's democratic, uh, democratically elected President Tsikhanovska who takes over the power. I think everything, oh, ma- um, most of the things, many things will depend on the the security class, which is in Belarus. All this, you know, the army, the KGB, the police, what size will they take? This is very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, briefly, uh, let us say about the prisoner exchange, which happened on May 25th, when U- Ukraine returned 106 of its prisoners of war who had been cre- uh, previously captured in battles in and around Bakhmut, and this is, of course, very, very important and very touchy. But we know, of course, that thousands of other Ukrainians are still in, imprisoned in Russia, are still prisoners of war. And uh, the bombings. So on May 26, Russia bombed a healthcare facility in Dnipro, leaving one dead and 23 wounded so far. Uh, but these days, these two days, two nights were very, very loud in Kiev. One of the major attacks on, on Russia of Russian missiles and drones over the Ukrainian capital. I don't know, Maxim, if you heard something very loud. I heard it, it was very loud both nights. And uh, uh, the night before, I heard this really ugly sound of this... Um, of these uh, Shahed drones, Shahed drones, Iranian Shahed drones, which were flying over our head like, like big, uh, I don't know how to call it, big uh, steel insects, right? <laughs> uh, really ugly sound that they produce, and then a huge explosion in Bl- in Brovary uh, this night where I live, which actually left us without electricity for the whole day, without water, internet, and mobile connection, etc. So uh, we kind of, uh, it was a deja vu. I, I, I thought I was back in November 2022 when we had these blackouts. Why they're doing this so often? What is, what is because we, we see right now is probably, I don't know, it's, it's already, it's certainly about 20 or maybe 15 attacks on Kiev in May alone. I think, yes, it has been the 15th or 16th attack this night. And indeed, we have highlighted in our uh, announcement of what we will discuss the strike that happened uh, in Dnipro because of the casualties it, it left. So, um, but still, uh, they have been much more numerous, these strikes. And so if, if you count, this basically means every other day they are attacking Ukraine, particularly Kyiv, primarily. Um, I think that, again, their, um, their goal here is double-fold. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they want to exhaust our uh, air defense. And I think this might have something to do, it's just my guess, but it might have something to do with the Pentagon leaks, where there was information that Ukrainian um, that Ukrainian air defense might be depleted of its resources, or at least the Soviet part of it would be depleted of its resources, guess by which time, by May. So maybe th- this is what they're trying to uh, to bet on. And, you know, when one night would not be able to shoot down everything because so far, thanks God, we are shooting next to everything. Uh, they will see that, aha, this is the moment when we can go go all in again because their air defense has been depleted. So maybe that's that's one thing. And also, I think that uh, it, again, is moral pressure. 
in the run-up to the counter-offensive, saying like, guys, do not even try because you see how often and how heavily we can strike uh, at the peaceful cities, uh, you know, etc. So I think that, that that's the idea too. Yes, and uh, both these ideas show that Russia Russia is trying to seem strong, but it's actually quite weak because um, uh, striking at peaceful cities is the only thing that it, it can really achieve right now. So we will end on this note for our general public. And this was an overview of the week from the 22nd of May until 29th of May. Vladimir Yermolenko and Maxim Panchenko were with you. Uh, this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World. Uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine World. And uh, for our patrons, we are actually supplying additional content and uh, our patrons will be able to listen to the full version of this podcast. Uh, in that patron episode, in that patron segment, we will discuss some topics in detail. For example, the topics of deportation of the Ukrainians by Russians, uh, what we can say about this. The topics of energy, uh, is Ukraine preparing well for the next winter? And the topic of uh, um the, the topic of uh, very important which is uh, i actually forgot but let me <laughs> let me just have a look the topic of uh, psychology of course psychology psychology of children uh, during this war and we will talk about these issues in detail thank you for listening to us and uh, this was a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org